You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. SGLT2 inhibitors are a new class of medications that are being investigated for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Joining us to discuss this hot topic in diabetes research is Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans, Louisiana, Dr. Vivian Fonseca. Dr. Fonseca, welcome to Reach MD. Hello. Thanks for joining us. I'm pretty excited to talk about this new class of medications called sodium glucose transporter protein. Tell us what they are and how do they work? Well, glucose needs a protein transporter to take it across from one uh, across cells from one lumen to the other. Even in the gut, for example, if you eat glucose, you need a transporter to take it across the gut membrane. And there are two transporters you would need there. One from the gut into the into the uh, cells, and then another transporter to take it from the cell into into the blood. Similarly, there are transporters in the kidney. As you know, you filter all the glucose that's in your blood when it goes through the kidney, and then it goes into the tubule where uh, there are two types of transporters, a transporter that takes it into the tubular cell, and then a, another transporter that will take it into the into the blood. So these transporters are, are proteins. They're very important in taking glucose across cells, and uh, they exchange glucose for sodium. That's why they're called sodium glucose transporter proteins. Now, what's the problem with these SLGT uh, transporters in people with diabetes? Are they defective? Actually, they're not very defective. They're working over time in a way because uh, people with diabetes uh, have higher blood sugars than those without the condition. So they've, the glomerulus is filtering a lot of glucose, and these transporters have to reabsorb and to, or try to reabsorb as much as they can. Like any other system, they get sat, the system gets saturated. It reaches what one would call Tmax. And, and if it can't transport anymore, then, that prote- then the glucose is excreted out uh, into the kidney. So there's nothing major wrong with the transporter itself, although there's some functional abnormalities that I'll come to in a minute. The classic abnormality of these transporter proteins leads you to uh, what we very well have recognized for many, many years and call it renal glycosuria. That is, people who have normal blood sugars, you know, at 120, they're spilling glucose in the urine. And that's because you have a genetic defect, a mutation in this uh, uh, gene that makes this protein, uh, the one in the kidney is called SGLT2. Uh, so SGLT2 mutations lead to your inability to reabsorb uh, glucose efficiently, so you lose it in the urine. So uh, in diabetes, the normal renal threshold is about 180 to 200. So when your glucose crosses that, you are overloading this protein, and this transporter system gets over oversaturated, and you end up losing glucose in the urine. 
in patients with venal glycosuria, it, it occurs at a much lower level. Now, in some people with diabetes, you have uh, the, the transport of protein sort of gets used to high levels of glucose. So in, in people with diabetes, particularly in older individuals, the renal threshold is, appears to be higher, and that's because the system gets more efficient. It's seeing so much of glucose, it's trying to reabsorb it. So people with 200 and 220 are not able to excrete uh, a lot of glucose. And that excretion of glucose, in a way, is a homeostatic mechanism. It stops the blood sugar from going too high. And that's why urine testing is no good in older people. Just to clarify, because this is, this is a whole new physiology, so this class of compounds are SGLT2 transporter inhibitors creating uh, a situation kind of like renal glycosuria, and that lowers the glucose in the blood? That's absolutely correct, because, as I said, you filter all the glucose, and if you inhibit this transporter protein, you're going to lose the glucose in the urine because it's not reabsorbed in the tubule. And so you will have glycosuria, and because you're losing so much, uh, once you cross the threshold, you lose it, and the blood sugar just does not rise too high. That certainly is quite different than the mechanisms of all the other compounds we have on our, on our current uh, market today. That is true. It's a completely different approach. It's, we don't often think about these transporter proteins as being involved in the pathophysiology of diabetes. And except for the minor abnormality that I think is adaptive, that I mentioned earlier, uh, it is not really part of the true pathophysiology, yet it's, in a way it's an escape phenomenon. It allows you, if the other systems are not working and the blood sugar is rising, it allows uh, the glucose to go out another way and not do damage in the body because we know that the complications of diabetes are related to high glucose in circulation for too long. Absolutely. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I am speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Vivian Fonseca, and we're discussing this very interesting new class of compounds for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, SGLT2 inhibitors. Well, let's talk about clinical data, Vivian. Uh, what have the clinical trials shown so far in patients with type 2 diabetes? Well, as you would expect, the first thing you want to see if you're inhibiting this enzyme is glycosuria. So if you give a patient uh, this compound that inhibits this SGLT2, in, in, uh, actually, just to go back, there have been inhibitors of SGLTs for many, many years. There's a compound called fluorazine that was produced in the 60s and 70s, and the trouble is it, it inhibited the, all these glucose transporters including the gut. So you just didn't absorb glucose, you excreted too much, but you got a lot of side effects because it was nonspecific. Mm -hmm. Now we, uh, uh, we have a number of uh, drugs in development that are very specific for the transporter in the kidney, SGLT2. So the first thing you need to show is that you don't inhibit absorption from the gut and you don't get GI side effects, yet you get glycosuria. So the, the number of studies clearly demonstrating that you increase glycosuria, and with that, you lower glucose. Now, you will, you will have more glycosuria when the glucose is high, such as in the postprandial period, so postprandial reductions are, are, are quite substantial. But even in the fasting state, you get reductions 
so you may get a reduction in fasting glucose of about 30 to 40 milligrams and then postprandial of about 60 milligrams. This has been shown in many studies. What about A1C, Vivian? Well, A1C can come down fairly substantially. And then there's limited data that has been published because much of this is still in development. But you get an A1C reduction that can be quite substantial, maybe about 1%. Uh, let me remind you that, as we well know, the amount of reduction in A1C you get depends on how high your A1C is at the start. So that's, a, I think, for today, a pretty good reduction in A1C. What about weight and other cardiovascular markers? When you lose glucose in the urine, you're going to lose calories. And as you know, most Calorie deficit is very important for weight loss, and calorie excess is what is responsible for most of our patients gaining weight. In fact, when you control diabetes, one of the mechanisms why you get weight gain is that you're no longer losing glucose in the urine. If you remember, people with uncontrolled diabetes have polyuria, polydipsia, and lose a lot of, of sugar in the urine, and they're losing weight. And when you control it, they gain the weight because that you stop losing those calories. So you're talking about a calorie loss in an uncontrolled uh, patient of about maybe five, 600 calories a day. So now you're inducing that calorie loss, and, and so you get some degree of weight loss. You may also get some degree of water loss because glucose is osmotic. So you see this change very quickly, and there's much argument of how much of it is calorie loss and how much of it is fluid loss, but whatever it is, you get weight loss of about four or five pounds pretty quickly. Talking about the side effects, are, are there more urinary tract infections? We have very limited data. We have no long-term clinical trials. Uh, you do have uh, more excretion of glucose, and as you know, glucose is a growing medium for bugs and yeasts and things like that. So there have been reports of increased urinary tract infections, genital infections, particularly in women, uh, which you actually see in people with uncontrolled diabetes. They get more yeast infections because they're excreting glucose, which the yeast love. So in a way, we may be uh, aiding and abetting these uh, yeasts from growing, uh, from colonizing the lower GI tract, particularly in the setting of uncontrolled, long-standing diabetes where people are more susceptible to infection. Mm-hmm. This is something that will need to be worked out and we need to work out a strategy of how we are going to overcome this, whether it means taking more water to flush out the glucose a little better and dilute out the amount of glucose that's sitting in the bladder or training people to evacuate their bladder a little bit more often. Uh, these are things that we need to think about. Well, tell us what kind of different drugs are on the development in this class. There are several companies that are involved. I mean, the three that have some published data. Not all of it is human data. There's some animal data published with a drug called Depagliflozin. There's another one called Remobliflozin, and another one called Sergliflozin. As increasingly, I feel that these generic names are becoming complex tongue twisters, but <laughs> that's what we've got. That's for sure. There are several others that don't even have a name yet. So the one that is most far advanced in development is Depagliflozin where they actually have several publications, including a very interesting one that was recently uh, published in Diabetes Care. I'm not sure it's in print, but certainly online, where they added it to people with type 2 diabetes treated with insulin. Now, as you know, that's a very challenging group to treat. And uh, these people lost a little weight, as I mentioned earlier. Their glucose control improved. They had more glycosuria, but they improved their uh, glycemic control without major 
problematic side effects. They did have some uh, urinary tract infections. Now, this is, of course, a short-term trial. We have no long-term data, and we'll see what comes off it. Well, thanks, Vivian. Uh, we're we're going to definitely have to have you back once, uh, if and when the, these uh, any of these drugs are approved by the FDA. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans, Louisiana, Dr. Vivian Fonseca. Dr. Fonseca, thanks so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. What are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes, and like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.